what we know? How do we take what we have read in the Bible? How do we take what we believe and walk it out in everyday living? How to be a practical Christian? Practical means to put it into practice, right? It's Christianity that you put into practice. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at that, how we can have head knowledge. We can know what to do, but until we actually do it, it doesn't profit us anything. Just for an example, yesterday, wasn't it hot yesterday? It was good, but it was bad, but it was good. It's like that first one where you're like, this is bad, but it's good. Well, how many of you know you're supposed to change your filters in your furnace, like, I don't know, every month or three months or something like that? So yesterday, Sarah was away in the morning, and I realized that the temperature of the house was getting hotter and hotter. And there's one thing you don't want to have a pregnant wife be, and that's hot. Okay. And I thought, oh, no. We've got a problem. As I realized, our outside condenser unit had frozen over, and I began to scramble, think, what, what could have gone wrong? And then I realized that the filter hadn't been changed in over a year. And doing some research online, I realized that can cause your... This is a, just for your information. Go home and check your filters, people. Um, if your filter's not changing, it clogged, and it can freeze up your whole unit. So that's what happened, and it, mean we ha- it meant we had to turn off the AC all day yesterday and to let the thing defrost, but it's good. It's back now, and Sarah was gracious through the, the day where it was hot. But my point in saying all of that is I had head knowledge. I knew you have to change the filter, but because I didn't put it into practice, head knowledge didn't benefit us on the hottest day so far of the year. Are you with me? So what we have to learn to do as believers is take what we know, what we've read, what we've heard in the church, what we know from our Bible stories, and we have to figure out how we apply that to everyday life. Otherwise, we've just got a lot of head knowledge, but we miss the power of the gospel. And the power of the gospel doesn't become manifest when you hear something, even when you know something. The power of the gospel it becomes manifested in your life when you begin to do something. Come on. Preaching to anybody in the house this morning. So sometimes maybe what we're missing in our life and the wall that we keep hitting ourselves against and we keep saying, well, where's God and how comes I don't experience God like that? Isn't because God is holding off. Could it be that we have a lot of head knowledge, but we aren't practicing what we know? We want God to speak to us and we want to know his voice. How many of you want that? But we haven't spent time in his word, his words, so we don't recognize his voice when he speaks. I can be in a room full of of 100 kids, but if one of my kids yells dad, instantaneously, I know it's them. Why, parents, do we do that? We know their voice. How do we learn the voice of the Father? We spend time with him. We read his word. We pray. We get into atmospheres of worship. And suddenly it's like, I don't know why I know that or how I heard that. It just, I just know that that's what God would want me to do. 
Come on, how many of you know it's not always an audible voice? Most of the time, it's not an audible voice from heaven. It's just this inner knowing that that's not the nature of God. That's not what God would want. That's, that's not who he is. That's not how I should respond. And that comes out of relationship with him and putting into practice things that we know. So we know we should pray. We know we should read our Bible. We know we should be in worship. But until we practice it, we will miss the power that is attached to those activities. All right, I didn't even get to the second line of my notes. It's going to be good today. First verse of scripture, Philippians 4, 9. And again, this is really the heart of what we've been saying over these last few weeks. It says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. I'm gonna read that part again. What you have learned, received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Practice these things. Put into practice the things that you've heard, the things that you know. Can I just submit to you that I believe we already have on the inside of us everything that we need to live a victorious life on this earth today, now. We're not waiting for God to supernaturally provide us something. He's already done it. He's already been to the cross. He already washed away our sin. He already rendered hell and the grave defeated. He's already given us power in a name that's above every name that he said. As soon as you say that name, every knee in heaven and earth will bow. Come on, somebody. I'm preaching good. Come on. He said that you can bind in earth and it will be bound in heaven. You can loose on earth and it will be loosed in heaven. He's given us power and authority on the earth. So the problem isn't that we're waiting on God. The problem then must be that we have heard, we have learned, and we have witnessed something, but failed to ever walk it out and put it into practice. We want the results without practicing the principle. Okay. (laughs) So the power of the Christian life is in not what you intend to do, but in what you actually do. Not what I intended to do, but what I actually do. It's not about what you know. Intellectual knowledge is great. Support it. Go for it. Get it. But if you have intellectual knowledge but don't put it into practice, what use is it? Come on, if you spend 20 years studying brain science and how to perform brain operations, but somebody's in front of you dying and they need a brain operation and you choose not to do anything with it, what was the purpose? It's knowledge not put into practice. So it's not what you know It's about how you integrate into your life by way of habits. Everybody just say habits. Do you know over 40% of what you do in your life is a result of habit? Or 40% of what you do in your life is a result of habits. Just what I do. It's just, and you know, they say it takes about two weeks to form a new habit or to break a new habit. We're forming new habits every day. Prayerfully, we're breaking old habits that are bad for us. But listen to this, knowledge will not shape your future. Knowing God will not change your circumstance. Going to church will not change your future. Listen, reading your Bible alone will not transform you. Putting into practice what you have heard, learned, and saw will change you, will transform your future, will bring breakthrough into your life. 
Your habits shape your life and your habits create your future. Your habits will shape your life and they will create your future. So, so often we get knowledge, but we never allow that knowledge to shape our habits. So we can know something, but unless we do it, it doesn't help or change us. Amen? A lot of people I have found who are critical of the Christian faith are people who watch from the bleachers. People maybe who even attend church, who know our ways, know our practices, know when to stand, know when to sit, but they've never put it into practice. So their takeaway from Christianity is that doesn't make sense. That, that, that doesn't seem right. Because what they've heard is information, knowledge, but failed to put it into practice. It doesn't make sense that the Bible says that if you want to be exalted, humble yourself. <laughs> that you want to be greatest among all, be the servant among all. Right? Does it, it's like, doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that the Bible says if you want to be blessed, give, and it will be given back to you. Like the world would say, hoard it up, you know, do what you have to do, scheme, climb the ladder, push people out of the way. And the Bible says, no, 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 prefer others above yourself. So generously, humble yourself in the sight of man and I'll exalt you. So the world looks at that and says, well, that's such a bunch of group of people trying to push people down. No, 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 because you haven't put it into practice. You haven't been on this side of it where everything we wanted to do was push somebody out of the way and we kept our flesh in control and we walked in patience and we followed the principles of God and then saw God come through in a supernatural way that only God could do and exalt us when we didn't deserve it and bless us when we didn't ask for it. Come on, somebody. So a lot of people who are critical of the Christian faith are people who watch from the bleachers and maybe even attend church, but they never put it into practice. That's why we have to focus on putting the right things into practice in our own lives and be careful of critiquing other people and not somebody else's life. So today in this installment, that was just opening review. So hope you got something out of it. One of the biggest things that I think are keys to being a successful Christian is being planted in God's house. Being planted in God's house. I believe, church, that if you want your life to flourish and to grow and to produce good fruit, being planted in God's house is a non-negotiable. It's a non-negotiable. Church is essential. Church is essential. I believe after becoming a Christian is one of the most important decisions that a Christian can make is where they connect themselves how integrated they get and how much they can serve and be a part and connected to the local church. Listen to Psalms 92, verse 12. The righteous, who? The righteous, who's that? That's you and I. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age, they will stay fresh and green. 
Those who are planted in the house of the Lord will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green. Come on, what is, what is the if? You wanna stay fresh, you wanna stay green, you wanna flourish in your life, you wanna produce good things? Planted in the house. Now I want us to know this morning and, and just say it right up front, there is no perfect church. Sorry to break the news to you. And there's a reason for that. There's no perfect church because there's no perfect people. Anywhere there's people, there are problems, imperfections, struggles. But together, collectively, we are a house of imperfect people. And when we understand that that's what we come to the table as our imperfections, our, our problems, our, our, our habits that aren't good, but when we understand this, it gives us tolerance and grace, not only for ourselves, but also for other people. I know I didn't, and hopefully you didn't, but I didn't come into the house this morning with it all together. I didn't come in knowing, well, I'm good, everything's in line, and I'm the pastor, man. I mean, like, I, like there were things, I'm like, Jesus, right before church, I got to repent for that and wash me under the blood and forgive me of that. I got to keep, you know, I got to help me, you know. I didn't come to the table perfect. I didn't come to the table without problems. And I didn't come to the table without a history of bad decisions. But I came to the table as somebody who says, I'm a beggar looking for bread and I found where there's bread. And that's in Jesus. So we all collectively come with our problems and our hangups and our attitudes and we come into the house and we collectively say, get out of that mess and lift up your eyes because Jesus is the way. Amen? But people, for some reason, when we see problems in the church or we see failures in the church, of course, the enemy and the, the world, not that the world is the enemy, but the enemy will, will twist it to how people perceive it in the world. will say, see, 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 that's why I don't go. That, that, that's why. Well, listen, if you're going to a church that claimed to be perfect, then you're probably in the wrong place to begin with. And let me rephrase it this way. There's no perfect marriages. Any married people in the house? <laughs> right now you're thinking of everything they do and they're thinking of everything that you do. Come on, there's no perfect parents. There's no perfect families. But we know that marriage is sacred. We know that family is God's plan. But we don't need a perfect spouse to experience the great benefits and blessings of marriage. Are you with me? I don't need a perfect spouse to experience the blessings of God-ordained marriage. I don't need a perfect family to experience the blessings of having children and brothers and sisters and family, right? Like, you know, Uncle Joe's just out of his mind, but you just love Uncle Joe and you know he's out of his mind. And you just love him and accept him for who he is because that's who he is, right? Come on, you know your sisters or your brother's kids all have bad attitudes and you wish they would have raised them different, but they didn't. And you talk about it in the car away from, you know, the family reunion, but you love them anyway. Touch them, do something, push them, argue with them. Come on, you're showing up for your family, right? So my point is you can experience the blessing of marriage, the blessing of family, 
without the expectation that it's always perfect. So why do we approach the family of God with this expectation? Well, they have problems. Yep, so do you. (laughs) They shouldn't have done that. Maybe, maybe not. Show me your clean record of every right decision. That's why the Bible says, just focus on your own eyes. Take the log out of yours. Run the race together, encourage one another, support one another, lift each other up, be connected, be planted in the house of God. The same as the church, along with all of its problems and all of its failures, it's still God's chosen instrument to bring the will of heaven to earth. The church is God's idea. If you're taking notes, that's point number one. The church is God's idea. Anyone who says that church is a man-made organization is just plain wrong. The church was mentioned 114 times in the New Testament. And Jesus himself was the founder of the church. He mentions it in in Matthew 16, verse 18, when he's having this discussion with, with Peter. And he's saying, Peter, you know, who do you believe that I am? Who do people say that I am? And then Peter eventually responds, well, we believe that you are the son of God. And Jesus responds that man has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly father. And he says, on this revelation that I am the son of God, I will build my church. Let's read it, Matthew 16, 18. And I tell you, Peter, and on this rock, I will build my, everybody say my Man-made, Pope-made, my church and the gates of Hades or hell will not overcome my church. Jesus established the church. Jesus knew it wasn't good to do life alone. He knew that we would need a community. Even Jesus himself, come on, he didn't need the disciples to follow him around to perform miracles. Like they didn't really do much, but get in his way most of the time anyway. And he had to correct them most of the time and, you know, get them right. And they were arguing all of the time and it was just problems. Like it would have been easier to say, I got this guys, just stay back. I'm going to go into the village. I'll report, right? But no, he did life together with people. Jesus did life together with his disciples. And I know we know about the 12, but the Bible says, and we, we learned in our Easter people like Mary Magdalene and, and uh, Joseph of Arimathea, and we, we, you know, all these other people, Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus, who were f- partners of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus had a lot of people around him most of the time, doing life and community together, encouraging one another, strengthening people. So Jesus is the founder of the church. It was God's idea. Point number two, the church is God's plan for expanding his kingdom on earth. The church is God's plan for expanding his kingdom on earth. The church is plan A and there is no plan B. Say that again, the church is plan A and there is no plan B. Why is that important? Well, because tag, we're it. tag, we're it. You know, I'm only 37, but as I get older and I see people in my life who have impacted me and through their ministry or, or pastors, friends of mine who are aged and passed away, you know, every time it just hits in a different way for me. 
Because when there are people that you've looked up to and that you served with and you gleaned from and you learned from, all of a sudden I get this, this reality and this thing is like they were my covering. They were my people I looked up to. And now that they're gone, we're it. We're the church of the gen- this generation. We can either take what they taught us, our forefathers, our, our pastors, our churches, we can either take that knowledge and keep it in our head and just say, well, we know a lot about God because of what they taught us, or we could radically change our cities and our nation for the gospel of Jesus Christ if we actually start walking out what they've done. But here's the thing, it falls on our shoulders. It falls on our shoulders. We, we've talked in this series about the builder and the apprentice. In every apprentice's life, there's a time where the builder exits the scene. Talking about your kids. There's a time where they leave your home and you are no longer the builder of their life. They become the builder. And can I say, church, in this generation, we are the builders of the church. So what will we do with what's been given to us? Our forefathers were persecuted martyred, burned, hunted, hidden in caves, worshiped underground, all despite all of that, spreading the gospel like wildfire. Read the the New Testament. All but one of the disciples were martyred because of their faith. Now, we don't necessarily face that type of persecution today, but from generation to generation, it's been handed down. And can I say, it rests on our shoulders of what we will do with the church. We can water it down, make it friendly to every doctrine that the world puts out, or we can take up our shield of faith and say, we will see a move of God in this generation. I'm gonna keep going. We own the rights. I'm gonna say this, this might sound strange, but we own the rights of what God does in this generation. I don't have time to teach this whole thing, but God gave mankind dominion in the garden. He has power, he has authority, but we have dominion. So when God gave man dominion, he never took dominion back. So mankind has dominion on the earth. So when God wants to do something on the earth, he has to do it through a man, which is why God didn't come down himself, but he had to come down through a form of a man named Jesus to be on the earth. So we still have dominion. So when God wants to do something in the earth, he has to do it through people. The same for the devil. The devil is spirit, has no body, has no authority because he's spirit alone. Are you with me? So even when the devil wants to do something, what does he have to do? He has to bring people into your world to irritate you. I'm teasing. But what he does evil, he does through people. Because spirit has no authority, man has authority. You got that? That's a whole teaching we can get into later on. So when God wants to do something on the earth and he wants to bring revival to a city and he wants to save a nation and he wants to set the hearts of men ablaze, what does he look for? He looks for people who are on the earth who say we are willing, we are able to be sent 
to do what it is that you want to do on the earth. We are your church. We are your body represented on the earth. So tag, we're it. We're the generation. What do we do with the weight of that on our shoulders? That if God wants to do anything, we have to be willing. If we want to see our city saved, we have to be willing. If we want to see revival come to our nation, we have to be willing. We have to be able to lay ourselves down. I was talking to a sister of the Lord a few weeks ago, and I absolutely love the story because I've been encouraging you as we have gone through election and crazy political climates and things like that. And I've said to you, listen, I'm not for putting people down and putting your social media post of, you know, and mocking this president and hating that one and saying all these negative things. That's not the love of God. But what I've said to you time and time and time again is if you are that passionate about politics, run for something. Get involved, be on city council, get on your school board, do something. I was talking to a sister in the Lord who, a few weeks ago who said, you know, I did it and I ran for council and I'm on the council of my town. I don't know why I'm there. I just did it and God opened the doors and I'm there. And that's powerful to me because it's somebody who stands and says, you know what? I'm the church in my generation. And I can either sit back and complain and sit back and just, you know, whatever happens or sit back and just do my life and be about me, or I can get up and be involved and do what God's called me to do. Come on, somebody. I'm not saying you have to run. That's not what God's called you to, but whatever it is that he's put before you, that's you being the church in this generation. I have to move on. So the church owns the rights to what God wants to do in this generation. We have to allow them to do it. The church has often taken a bad rap from people who are hurt or experience pain as a result of the church or its leadership. Can I say that there are many cases where church abuse or church manipulation is real? If you've been in the church any length of time, you may have come from a situation where you felt like leadership manipulated you or you felt hurt in some way by a church. And I acknowledge that pain. And I acknowledge that that is real. But to walk away from the church because of the messiness of the church, Christ, the Bible says, is the head of the church. As a result of pain, we shouldn't disconnect ourselves from the body, which is connected to the head right? Like I may have stubbed my toe and it was my eye's fault because I wasn't paying attention. But could you imagine if my toe was like, you know what? I'm out. <laughs> I'm done. Can I say the rest of the body would survive? But listen, death would come to the toe because the toe was never meant to survive disconnected from the body. I'm not, I'm not one of those pastors. Oh, you left my church. You're going to die. Okay. <laughs> I'm, not that, I'm not that good. Right? <laughs> I've heard pastors say that. Oh, they talk bad about us. They're going to get cancer and die. You're full of the devil. Quit it. I've heard people say that to me. But I will say spiritually, if you are not connected to the body, spiritual death 
will always be the result. Will always be the result. So as a result of pain, as a result of bad leadership, as a result of people hurting us, we should never disconnect ourselves from the body of Christ. Church hurt is real, but the disciples didn't bail on, on Jesus because of Judas, did they? Because Judas was a bad apple. They didn't bail on Jesus and say, well, we're out of here then. Their eyes were fixed on Jesus, not Judas. We are all inconsistent. And that's the only, this is the only community that celebrates the fact that we are all in a process. So to demand that we get grace and nobody else does, listen to me, is self-righteous. Self-righteous. 